The Metropolitan Opera Guild is the premier arts education organization dedicated to enriching the lives of children and adults through the magic and artistry of opera. To learn more about the Guild's many exciting programs and events, please visit metguild.org. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. I'm your host, Naomi Baratera, and the goal of our podcast is to share knowledge and insights into the operatic art form, drawing our content from a variety of different educational programming that we have going on here at Lincoln Center in New York City. For today's episode, I thought it would be fun to take some time and really delve into different types of arias that we encounter in the operatic art form. The word aria is one that we use a lot in the opera world, and the word literally translates from Italian into English as simply meaning song. It usually indicates a moment for solo voice, and is most often used as a musical term when discussing solo song moments in operas and oratorios. Now in opera, great arias have long been an opportunity for singers to showcase their virtuosity, often offering an intimate look at a character's innermost feelings, their emotions, desires, and dreams, and arias are also the moments in which a composer gives us glorious melodies that stick in our memories. So in today's episode, this is what we're going to delve into, these great aria moments, and really look at the structure and logic behind some of these arias and different types of arias that we encounter. Now, when I started writing this episode, I imagined it would be a kind of whirlwind tour through all the different types and structures of arias that we find in opera, with just basic descriptions of each one and some of my favorite examples of each particular type. But as I started writing, I realized there are so many different types and structures of arias that have emerged throughout the 400 plus years of opera history that it would be nearly impossible to cover all of them with excellent examples in just one hour of an opera podcast episode. So I started writing talking about the Da Capo aria, and as I was writing, I realized it would be much more fun to do a deep dive into a couple of aria types, and much more interesting than just whipping through the basic definitions. So we are going to start with an aria structure that is probably the most common aria type in early opera, meaning operas of the Baroque and Classical period, and that is the da capo aria. These arias were generally based on short poetic texts, and the text was repeated several times within the musical setting, and there is a strong focus on expressing a specific feeling or emotion or sentiment from the text as convincingly as possible. So in the da capo aria, the goal was never really to move the plot forward at a great pace. That's generally what the recitatives are for in Baroque opera. But the goal was to reflect upon or explore a specific emotional state or an emotional dilemma or a thought process that a character was going through. The da capo aria specifically refers to an aria in three sections. So because of this, it is also sometimes referred to as a ternary form. There is an A section, a B section, and then a repeat of the first A section with certain special aspects added to the repeated A section. And we're going to get into that in a moment, what these special aspects are. An essential trait of this aria form is that the musical material of the A section and the musical material of the B section contrast with one another. They are supposed to express different sentiments, different moods, different affections. So how is contrast created? Contrasting major and minor keys is a very common technique employed to create this contrasting feeling and sentiment. So you often find in da capo arias that an A section might be in a major key. It will sound bright, uplifting, joyful, happy, generally very positive. And then when you move into the B section, it becomes very obvious that you're in a new part of the aria because the key turns to the minor. So the sound becomes more foreboding or anxious, mournful, lamenting, generally darker in mood and feel because the composer has modulated to a minor key. Another way of creating musical contrast is featuring two different tempi. 
So if the A section features a faster, more upbeat tempo, tempo is the Italian word for speed or pace of a piece, then the B section will likely feature a slower tempo. Dynamics can also be used to create contrasting shades from one section to another. So if an A section is sung forte or loudly, the B section can provide contrast by calling for a softer volume level like piano. And then sometimes the composer will use orchestration to amplify the contrast as well. So featuring different instruments in the A section than they do in the B section. And of course, text is also important since the sentiment of the music is designed to enhance the sentiment of the text. And of course, melody can be used and crafted in a way that contrast is created from one section to the next. So as a hypothetical example, if a composer created an A section that featured fast, compact, staccato rhythms moving through ascending gestures or an ascending arc in the vocal line, so maybe the singer just keeps moving up and up and up and up, maybe their character is getting increasingly more excited or impassioned about what they're singing about, then the composer could contrast this in the B section by crafting longer note values for the singer with legato phrasing, so smooth and connected movements from one note to the next. And maybe he decides to have a descending pattern in the vocal line. So instead of moving up and up and up, the singer slowly moves back down again throughout the B section. That's just one way that melody can be contrasting from one section to the next. So when you bring all of these things together, key being major and minor harmonies, tempo, rhythm, dynamics, orchestration, text and melody line, when you play with all of those different elements of music, then a composer can create contrast in many different ways. So we're going to listen to some examples so you can hear how this works in some of the great da capo arias of the early operatic canon. We're going to start with an example from one of my absolute favorite Baroque operas, Giulio Cesare by Handel. This first example is from a recording that a good friend and very passionate Baroque opera lover introduced me to many years ago, before I had ever even seen the opera, and I use it all the time in opera boot camp here at the Guild as a classic example of a da capo aria. This is Da Tempeste, sung by the legendary Beverly Sills. But before we listen, what are the specific elements of this da capo aria that you should be listening for? First, we should know what the text is describing. And this aria is very easy to kind of get a grasp of the sentiment behind the text because the whole aria is essentially a poem in six lines. And that is for both the A and the B section. So the A section is lines one through three and the B section is lines four through six. So if we just look at the A section first, I'll give you the text in Italian and then a rough English translation. So the three lines of text go like this. Da tempeste il legno infranto, se poi salvo giunge in porto, non sa più che desiar. So in English, essentially this translates to when a ship or a boat comes safely back to port after being beaten and endure, after enduring a storm, da tempeste, then the sailors want for nothing. They have no other desires. And so in the A section, which we're going to hear in just a moment, the music begins in a major key. It's actually an E major, which has four sharps. It has a nice bright sound and the melody is full of vocal ornaments, fast moving rhythms, trills, accented notes, repeated notes, staccatos, melismas, so many pitches sung to one syllable. And there are many different ways you could interpret it, but one way it is as if the music is portraying a wild force of a storm at sea that the boat has successfully endured or withstood is now triumphant on the other side of it. So let's give this a listen. This is the A section of Da Tempeste featuring Beverly Sills. Oh, <laughs> 
Now between the A section and the B section, it is common in a da capo aria that there is a little musical interlude. And in Baroque music, we usually call this the ritornello. So from this ritornello, we then move into the B section where the text compares this experience of a ship in a storm to the sufferings of a broken heart. So the last three lines of our poem, which make up the B section, go like this. Così il cor trapenne e pianto, or che trova il suo conforto, torna l'anima a bear. So translated into English, the sentiment behind this text is that when a heart that has been torn with suffering is at last comforted, then it brings a new kind of ecstasy to the soul, a new life to the soul, a new excitement, a new passion to the soul. And so the music of the B section turns into the minor key. It actually moves into C sharp minor. And this is really what gives us the strongest contrast in the aria, the major and minor differentiation. The rhythm and the melody of the singer's line in the B section is actually fairly similar to the A section. The tempo still moves along at a nice clip, but the melody line does tend to lean into those minor harmonies more. And there is this little section of repeated notes set in sequence with a kind of imitation effect happening between the voice and the orchestra that is really different and new, and that reinforces the minor harmonies as well. And as far as the contour of the vocal line goes, there's still lots of ornamentation, but it has more of a descending arc to it overall than the A section. So let's give this a listen. This is the B section of Da Tempeste, again with the amazing Beverly Sills. So when you get to the end of the B section, singers and performers see a little note in the score that says da capo, which translates from Italian to English as from the top or back to the beginning. And this is where the name of the aria comes from, of course, da capo, because instead of rewriting the whole A section out again, performers are instructed to go back to the beginning, da capo, and play until they see the word fine, which means finish, which is usually placed right at the end of the A section, usually at the end of the ritornello. So while you may be thinking, well, won't a simple repeat of what we just heard a few minutes ago be kind of boring? The answer to that is, yes, it would be boring if the convention was to repeat the A section without making any changes to it. But the exciting part about a da capo aria is that the repeat of the A section always, always, always features improvised ornaments that are added to the melody line to spice things up. So what we're going to do is we're going to go back to the beginning of the A section of Da Tempeste, and we're first going to listen to the first time that we heard it. So I've actually broken the A section into two different phrases so that we can listen to a small chunk that we heard the first time. And then I'm going to follow that with playing the exact same musical moment, but in the repeat of the A section so that you can hear all the amazing improvised ornaments that Beverly Sills adds to the melody line. So to start with, this is what we heard the first time. This is the A section of Da Tempeste, phrase number one. Thank you. 
And now we're going to listen to that exact same musical moment, the beginning of the A section, phrase number one, but this time when Beverly Sills repeats the A section. So listen for those ornaments. Amazing, isn't it? But it gets even better. So now we're going to listen to the A section phrase two. First, exactly how it was sung the first time round, where Sills is following the score very closely. So this is kind of a good insight into Handel's original crafting of this melody line. And then again, we're going to listen to that same moment in the repeat of the A section where Sills adds ornaments to the line. Now this is the repeat of the A section, the same phrase that we just heard with Beverly Sills adding improvised ornaments to the melody line. And so you think that's pretty amazing, but the crowning jewel is still yet to come, and that is at the end of these arias. So in every, or not every, but most Capo arias, there is a cadenza moment, and we don't really get a cadenza in the first statement of the A section, but it, we usually get it in the repeat of the A section because it's at the very end of the aria. So a cadenza is where the orchestra stops the accompaniment, the singer is completely alone or singing a cappella, and in the score there is a simple symbol in the music, it's called a fermata, and it's usually over top of a chord where the cadenza is supposed to take place. And a fermata simply means hold, and this is another moment where the composer never really notated what the singer was supposed to do. So especially in the early Baroque period, it was not common for composers to write out a cadenza. A cadenza was something that a singer created themselves, and it was designed to show off all the bells and whistles of their voices. So each singer will cater a cadenza to their specific strengths if there's something that they can do especially well, like trill on a note or sing really, really quickly up and down a scale, then they're going to incorporate as much of their strengths into the cadenza as possible. And so this, the singer creates their own cadenza showing off the voice, and then there's usually a musical cue that the singer gives to the conductor when they're ready to come back in or end things. So sometimes it's a trill, sometimes there's a slowing down in the tempo, a descending line, and this is all something that the singer and the conductor plan and discuss beforehand so that the orchestra knows when they need to be ready to jump back in and draw everything to a close. So let's listen to the cadenza on this recording so that you can hear what Beverly Sills does in this improvised moment.
Now I know that we didn't listen to this all the way through, so I highly suggest that you go and look up some of your favorite singers that might have performed this piece and maybe listen to a couple of different versions of it so that you can hear what each singer does with their return of the A section and their cadenza to end the piece. But for now, we need to move on because I want to show you another da capo aria, which is also from Giulio Cesare. And this is, again, one of my favorite arias in the piece. It's actually one of my favorite arias ever. And it is titled Piangerò la sorte mia. And what I find so interesting about this da capo aria is that it tends to follow an opposite pattern of contrast than what we commonly see. Similar to Da Tempeste, the text is very simple. It's another six-line poem. And so we're going to start with the A section, and the first three lines of text go like this. Piangerò la sorte mia, si crudele e tantoria, finché vita in petto avrò. And basically she's saying, I shall lament this cruel and wicked fate as long as I live or as long as I have life in my breast. So our character, Cleopatra, is mourning. She's lamenting her fate. And musically, the A section starts in a minor key. The tempo is slow. The vocal line features long, drawn-out legato phrases. And there is this beautiful back-and-forth or echoing effect between the singer and the orchestra. The harmonies also have this really gorgeous tension that Handel builds into these suspended dissonances and it's kind of built into this voice and orchestra back and forth, heightening the mourning effect of the piece, the lamenting quality of it. And there is no opening ritornello in this aria. It actually begins with just a chord in the orchestra and the singer's opening phrase right away. So let's give it a listen. This is the entire A section, and this is Danielle Denise singing Cleopatra. I just think this aria is so beautiful and so expressive, and what I also think is remarkable about it is the dramatic possibilities that it gives the singers. I actually fell in love with this aria when I saw the opera performed live for the very first time. It was at the Met in 2013, and Danielle Denise was singing Cleopatra, and Christophe Dumont was singing Ptolemeo, and Cleopatra's brother in the opera. 
And in this moment, Ptolemaeo has imprisoned Cleopatra for basically trying to usurp his throne. And in this particular production, Cleopatra sang this aria to her brother, so he was in the room where she's chained up. And in the A section, you could really feel the complexity of their sibling relationship. You could feel how tortured Ptolemaeo was at putting his sister in chains, and he's actually slowly physically drawn towards her, almost like she's a magnet that he can't resist by this emotional impact of what she's singing. And then it, it was fantastic because she was drawing him in closer and closer to him, and you could see that they were so close to reconciling. It's almost as if a real family bond could possibly trump the trouble between them. But then she reaches the end of the A section. His face is literally an inch away from hers. I think their foreheads might have been touching. And it's as if she has all the willpower in that moment to push down her sorrow and push aside any thoughts of reconciliation. And she sings the following text in the B section. Ma poi morta d'ogn torno, il tiranno e notte e giorno, Fatta spetro agitero, meaning, but when I am dead, I will haunt you, you tyrant, both day and night, I will become a ghost all around you. And so, in this moment, everything changes musically. She really launches into the B section with a vengeance. Suddenly, you see and hear Cleopatra, the ruthless ruler, the scorned sister, hellbent on revenge. The tempo picks up, the rhythm becomes confident and aggressive, the orchestra amplifies the feeling of fury with rapid alternating figures in the strings, and the tempo actually is marked in the score as allegro, meaning at a brisk tempo, and she sings this fantastic melisma, again many pitches on one syllable within a word, as if she is musically embodying a ghost that is swirling relentlessly around him, surrounding him, until she has her revenge. Just listen to the immense contrast of this section from what we he just heard. This is the B section of Piangero. <laughs> how the immense contrast between these sections gives the singers so much to work with dramatically. And Danielle Denise and Christophe Dumont were really captivating in this scene. It was stunning. And of course, feeling his sister's wrath, Ptolemeo did not stick around for the return of the A section. He stormed off the stage, leaving her in chains. So that allowed for the return of the A section to be a moment where the audience could experience the true raw emotion of Cleopatra. If the first A section was her trying to manipulate her brother with a display of grief, then the return of the A section was a moment where, left alone, her true sadness could be revealed. And, staying true to Baroque performance traditions, the return of the A is also a chance for ornamentation. So in this recording, the ornamentation is not nearly as lavish or complex as what we heard with Beverly Sills in Da Tempeste, but it doesn't need to be, and it probably wouldn't fit the expression of the music very well if it was, because she's mourning, she's lamenting, and so it needs to be a little bit more delicate, a little bit more simplistic, but still very effective. So let's give the repeat of the A section a listen. We're going to hear it in its entirety so you can hear how a slower tempo and more mournful feeling can also be very effectively ornamented.
Now, something that I love doing, which I kind of hinted at earlier, is listening to two different recordings of a Baroque aria performed by two different singers, just so I can hear the difference in how each singer chooses to interpret the aria, especially in the realm of improvised ornaments. So we're going to listen to mezzo-soprano Joyce Di Donato sing the same aria, Piangero, and as you listen, pay attention to the end of the B section very specifically. She adds a little ornamented cadenza-like moment there, since at the end of the aria itself, the end of the repeat of the A, it's a much quieter feeling, and so it's not really appropriate for a lavish cadenza to take place at the end of the repeated A. So instead, she adds it to this kind of fury-like B section to bring it to a very dramatic close. And her choices of improvised ornaments in the return of the A section are very different than Danielle Denise. Both are really lovely interpretations, but they're both very unique to each singer's strength and take on the aria. So this is Joyce Di Donato from the beginning of Piangero.
So we have now talked about two different da capo arias, both by Handel, but what about other types of arias that I mentioned, and what about other composers like Mozart, Rossini, Verdi, etc.? As I mentioned in the intro, we can't cover all the types of arias in one episode, but we are going to look at one more type in addition to da capo aria, and that is the cabaletta. So da capo arias are strongly associated with Baroque opera, especially with opera seria, meaning serious operas with lofty characters. But as I mentioned, they don't always allow the plot to move forward very quickly. So beginning around the time of Mozart, but then becoming really popular in the bel canto repertoire in works by Rossini, Donizetti, and Bellini, the aria structure of the cabaletta becomes very popular. A cabaletta is a two-part form, or a binary form, where the first part is called the cantabile section, and the second part is called the cabaletta section. And so this is where it can become confusing because cabaletta is used as both the name of the second section of the aria, but also it is commonly used to describe the whole structure in its two-part form. The cantabile section is always slower in tempo, more contemplative, usually with legato phrases, and we get a hint of this in the word itself because cantabile literally means in a singing style and it allows the character to reflect upon their feelings and their circumstances. Then it is followed by the cabaletta, where the character usually decides to take action in some way. So musically, the cabaletta contrasts with the cantabile in that it has a faster tempo, it's more active rhythmically, and usually there's a lot more vocal ornamentation that happens in the cabaletta. So let's look at an example of this form. Rossini wrote one of the greatest, most beloved cabalettas. It's in his opera Il Barbieri di Siviglia, or The Barber of Seville, and it is sung by Rosina, and it's called Una Voce Poco Fa. At this moment in the opera, Rosina has fallen in love with Count Almaviva, but she doesn't know his real name or who he really is. She only knows him as Lindoro. She has just received a letter from him, and she is overjoyed, and the cantabile begins with her singing about how much she passionately loves Lindoro and how determined she is that they be together. But she is certain that her guardian, Dr. Bartolo, will attempt to prevent her from ever seeing Lindoro again. The opening orchestral introduction to the cantabile features a very serious, formal, dotted rhythm, and there is a kind of quasi-recitative-like feeling to the beginning of Rosina's vocal line. The orchestral accompaniment is very simple, providing very basic chords and basic harmonies underneath her, so that the focus is really on her vocal line. And at the beginning, she sounds a little bit tentative, and as she begins to sing, her vocal line kind of gains a little bit more confidence, she adds a bit more ornamentation and vocal flourishes, and all of this is kind of expressing her growing depth of passion for Lindoro. The tempo is very moderate, not too fast, not too slow, and the overall feeling is that we're being let into her thought process. It is as if she is thinking out loud. So let's listen to this cantabile section, and again this is Joyce Di Donato singing Rosina at the Met in 2007. Oh, 
Now, as we move into the cabaletta, the tempo picks up a little bit and we get more activity in the orchestral accompaniment. Rosina begins singing about how she will need to be seemingly gentle and sweet, but then if anyone gets in her way of meeting Lindoro or pursuing a life with Lindoro, then she will use all of her willpower to outwit and trap those who are against her so that she can prevail in the end. Let's give the cabaletta a listen and note how the tempo tends to pick up and accelerate towards the end of the cabaletta. It builds in excitement and this is very much a hallmark of the cabaletta style and also a musical technique that Rossini did very, very well. He was just very, very good at building this type of excitement towards the end of an aria section. Now there are many examples of the cantabile cabaletta aria where the structure is very compact like una voce poco fa where there are no breaks in between sections and the whole aria form basically makes up the scene and the dramatic action. However, as opera starts to develop, composers start drawing out the forms and playing with the dramatic contours of a scene sometimes inserting recitative or other character interjections between the cantabile and the cabaletta 
almost making it feel as if the two sections are functioning separately. A really good example of this is Di Quella Piera from Verdi's Il Trovatore. This is actually an extremely popular cabaletta section. It's certainly one of the most popular and difficult tenor moments in the opera canon to sing. And it is actually a cabaletta section of a larger cantabile cabaletta structure. It has a fast, driving, heroic feel to the tempo, and Verdi utilizes this building of excitement towards the end of the aria to give it a very dramatic conclusion. So we're going to listen to this a little bit out of order. We're going to listen to the cabaletta section first, since that is the part of this larger scene that is the most popular. And this is Luciano Pavarotti singing at the Met in 1988. <laughs> So that's our famous cabaletta. But before we even get to this in the opera, there is a beautiful cantabile section that is drawn out and expanded to fit the overall action of the scene. Enrico, who is our main tenor character, sings Asi Ben Mio to Leonora as they are about to get married, and he's basically singing about how their love has made him fearless and completely happy, even if he is killed by his enemies. He will always be with her and they will be reunited in heaven. Really romantic stuff. So there's long legato phrases, a slower tempo. It's absolutely beautiful. And then between the cantabile and the cabaletta, there is this little duet moment between Manrico and Leonora as they prepare to say their marriage vows. And it's really neat because in this section you can hear the church organ in the background. <laughs> 
So what could possibly go wrong, right? They're literally steps away or moments away from being united as man and wife. But the orchestration changes. We get this frantic swirling in the orchestra, and one of Manrico's men interrupts them, telling them that his mother, Manrico's mother, Atsuchena, is about to be burned at the stake by their enemies. And instead of leading Leonora into the chapel and going through with the wedding, Manrico launches into Di Quella Pira, our cabaletta, summoning all of his men to join him as he goes to rescue his mother. So once again, because this cabaletta section, the Di Quella Piera, is so popular, it is often extracted, discussed, and performed as a standalone section, even though it really is embedded within a much larger scene. And basically, over time, this is what happens in the evolution of the opera aria. Composers push and expand these very traditional forms so that they're no longer composing with the intent of keeping the form intact, but composing according to the demands of the dramatic moment, and all sense of strict aria structure starts to slowly over time fall away. I would love to keep talking and keep exploring these different aria forms and go into some of these other composers that push the boundary of aria structures, but sadly we do have to wrap it up here. I know that we just covered two types of arias, the da capo aria and the cabaletta, but they are very important in the history and evolution of opera, and they certainly dominate the aria structure in Italian opera at the beginning of the art form, so the Baroque and Classical era and into the early Romantic era. And there are all kinds of other aria forms that we did not talk about. Strophic arias, through composed arias, cavatinas and ariettas, rondo structures, and there's also different types of arias that we can get into in future episodes, but we will save those to explore later on as there's simply not enough time to cover everything in one go. But hopefully our deep dive into the da capo aria and the cantabile cabaletta structure has given you lots of little things to listen for as you continue your opera learning and exploration, and hopefully some new repertoire for you to begin exploring and looking out for. That wraps things up for today, so thank you everyone for listening to episode 39 of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. I hope you enjoyed our topic today and be sure to listen in next week, July 13th, for a discussion of Mozart's Cosi Fan Tutte, which is coming up as a Met HD summer encore presentation in theaters all around the world on July 20th, 2016. I'm your host, Naomi Baratera, and thank you for listening.